I first started this business, I ran from the camera. The camera scared me to death. You know, I was telling you in the pre-show, I did seven keynotes over the last two days where I'm standing in front of two audiences where there were more than 2,000 people in the audience watching me on video. I'm terrified before I walk in because my world is standing on a stage where I can see people and interact with them. And when you're looking into the camera, making eye contact with the audience, I can't see them or anything. Like, I have no idea if everybody's asleep. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Jeb Blount. Jeb's the multi-best-selling author of books such as Fanatical Prospecting, and he's the founder and CEO of Sales Gravy. And in this episode, I talk with Jeb about, well, (laughs) we were meant to talk about negotiation, much as we were meant to talk about negotiation, and his excellent book titled, Inked, The Ultimate Guide to Powerful Closing and Negotiation Tactics that Unlock Yes and Seal the Deal. Well, part of a long story, we were meant to talk about that about twice before when Jeb's come on the show, but we always get sidetracked by something else. And as is our habit, that happened this last time we talked as well. We ended up talking about something else altogether. Uh, We got into the ins and outs of virtual selling. In particular, we dig into some of the major elements of Jeb's latest book titled Virtual Selling, A Quick Start Guide to Leveraging Video, Technology, and Virtual Communication Channels to Engage Remote Buyers and Close Deals Fast. And Jeb shares some really excellent ideas on how to set yourself up to succeed in the world of virtual selling. So be sure to stick around to the end because this is another value-packed conversation. Now, before we get to Jeb, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Jeb, welcome back to the show. It's Andy. It's it's awesome to be back. Thank you so much. I I think you've had me back now in the last, what, twice in the last three months or four months. So something like that. Yeah. Well, see, here's here's the thing. Now, you came last time and we were going to talk all about your book about negotiation and which we're and we didn't get to it because we got sidetracked, which is always a risk when we talk. And so nominally, we're going to talk about that book today. But you, my friend, write books faster than I can read them. <laughs> so <laughs> since that time, you've published yet another book, which I have to admit, I have not read yet. So we'll sort of save that and, and talk perhaps more in depth about it. But but before we get to negotiation, let's let's do talk about your latest book because it's so relevant to what's going on. You wrote a book about virtual selling. I did called Virtual Selling. <laughs> Shock! <laughs> How'd you come up with that name? I was. Uh, it took a long time. I worked hard. I worked it hard on the shower. So. <laughs> That's funny. That's where I have all my great creative thoughts too. I even bought one of those pads that you can write on in the shower. I got one of those too. I've never used it. Me but either. I, I have. <laughs> I've never used it either. I look at that day going, you know, I've never written on that thing. So. <laughs> well, I haven't even installed mine, so you're a step ahead of me. So, um, all right. So, virtual selling. Tell, tell, let's talk about that for a bit because we're in the midst of it. I again apologize. I haven't had a chance to read the book yet, um, and I always enjoy your books. But so, is virtual selling different than selling face to face in person? 
Well, it's a facsimile of selling face-to-face. And and the idea is that we can create the closest facsimile of selling face-to-face as possible because nobody's going to argue that a face-to-face communication isn't the best type of human communication. It's just not always efficient or effective in, you know, in the moment. So uh, one of the things that I'm, that I'm teaching people is, is a concept called blending, which is you take the sales process, you map it out. And this, by the way, is whether you're an inside salesperson or a field salesperson, and then you start taking a look at both your physical communication tools and your uh, and your virtual communication tools, and then you map those into your sales process so that in each step of the sales process or micro step of the sales process and with the right customer, that, et cetera, you're using the right communication channel that gives you the highest probability of getting your desired outcome at the lowest cost of time, energy, and money. So back to your original question, is virtual selling different than, than in-person selling? It's still selling. And so the steps are the same and the motions are the same. The questions are the same. The way we do things are the same. It's just there are some especially when it comes to video, some things that you need to keep in mind in order to deliver a better message, to deliver a better experience for your customer, and to make sure that you're not skipping steps in the sales process. Well, so let's get into that last part, because is there a tendency when you're selling virtually to skip steps or assume that there are steps to be skipped? Yes, there is a bad tendency. So one of the biggest problems that I'm noticing with salespeople across the board is that when they're on a virtual call, they are much less likely to ask for the next step. And let's just let's call a virtual call either a phone call or a video call because it's all virtual. It's just a right. facsimile of being there. For some reason or another, when salespeople, especially field salespeople who are transitioning from being in face to face, when they're on those calls, they they really struggle with that that close at the end of the call. For the next call, and I and I why I don't know why there's something. I mean, why field salespeople? I mean, I know salespeople in general have that issue, but why why is it more pronounced? Well, salespeople in general have that. I think that you know, if you're if you're a inside rep, you 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 have we all have that natural problem. But if you're an inside rep, you are always selling virtually anyway, most almost Mm -hmm. always by the phone. So your sales leaders are coaching you constantly to don't get to the end of the call and not ask. But with field reps, a lot of field reps just weren't used to doing like real sales calls on in a virtual environment. So they were they just weren't used to it. And they just get I I think it's the vulnerability that they feel when they're on a virtual call doing something that they're not accustomed to because they feel like a a, like part of their site's been taken away from them. And and they just freeze. And there's something about that closing on a virtual call where they just feel like maybe they haven't earned enough trust or the relationship, or they just don't get that, they don't get that loving feeling that they have in person when they know it's the right time. And I see it in my own salespeople, like we're at the end of the call and in a lot of times I'm waiting to see what they're going to do. And I'll just, you know, I'll end the call and go, okay, I got my calendar out. Let's go ahead and get the next call scheduled. So with, with, with inside reps, so SDRs, for example, they're always going to be almost 100% by phone. I mean, they're not making video prospecting calls. They may be doing video messaging, messaging right, right, so right. To, to, you know, to connect, but, they're, they're, but the phone's been their, you know, their primary tool. And to that extent, web chats so with inbound leads, you know, a lot of inside salespeople are having to learn web chat, especially proactive web chat, where you're yep. engaging someone on the website. Now, like with our web chat, we can make a phone call right in the web chat. So 
Yeah, it's it's a great tool. It's beautiful. So they're learning they're learning those tools. And I watch I watch inside sales reps on chat freeze up just like field sales do people do on a video call. So it's just something they don't understand. Mm. They get they get petrified on web chat. I watch salespeople. I mean, if you were to take chat alone, that's the place where I see the most terror. I see people just absolutely shut down <laughs> on chat. And I'm like, it's just a conversation. Right. So it's like I, I was explaining to one of my people who was having a hard time with them. Like if the phone rang, you'd be having a conversation. This is just the phone ringing and they're not talking to you. But in any moment, they could push that little video button and they're going to be on with you. So you need to be video ready. I think with account executives on the inside, though, as we start pushing account executives, so my trainers and consultants are working with a lot of companies to get the account executives to start moving more into video. So so I'll get t- two things. You know, a lot of account executives will do their discovery calls purely on the phone. And, mm-hmm. and in a lot of cases, they'll do their demos where there's a screen share so that their customer is on essentially a Zoom call with them or a video call with them, but they're not on video. Right. So the, the, the account executive, you never see their face. So teaching them when you when you initiate the call, they can see the full frame you. And if yes. you stop to ask questions, you turn the screen off and you put you back on the video call. On. Right. Yeah. And you put you where, where it makes sense. You put you in a picture in picture. And we see the same thing happening where we take account executives who are used to hiding behind the slide. And now they have to get out there. They start getting a little bit you know, nutted up in front of the camera as well. So it's it's just basic human vulnerability. And I get it. I mean, I'm, when I first started this business, I ran from the camera. The camera scared me to death. And, <laughs> and I, you know, I was telling yeah. you in the pre-show, I did seven keynotes over the last two days where I'm standing in front of, of audiences. I had two audiences where there were, there were more than 2,000 people in the audience watching me on video, I'm terrified before I walk in because my 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 world is standing on a stage where I can see people and interact with them. And when you're looking yep. into the camera, making eye contact with the audience, I can't see them or anything. Like I have no idea if everybody's asleep. So yeah, no, it's hard to play off it. I th- I miss that part too, and I'm doing it virtually. Is it's is not being able to play off the yeah. Yep. So, but you have to train yourself and 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 keep doing it until it gets better. So. I think that I think one of the biggest things to help salespeople understand, if we just dialed it all in, is that your customer's experience when they're working with you through the sales process is a more consistent predictor of outcome than any other variable. Yes, and a lot of companies are really starting to figure this out now. I think that the that the the pandemic has. I, it's the pendulum is swinging faster than I've ever seen before. I had a beautiful conversation with the CEO of a big tech company. And the one thing he was talking about is we got to differentiate on emotional things. We got to differentiate on our soft skills, on our relationship, on and how we sell. All right. So I'm going to stop you because this, this is something I was just ranting about to somebody the other day is, you know, in the echo chamber of LinkedIn is yeah, a relatively prominent sales thought leader, if you will, says, yeah, here's a big myth about sales. Yeah. You have to have relationships are important, basically. And I'm like, whoa, 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 wait a second. <laughs> this is coming up more and more, actually. It's like, why do people think that, A, you know, relationships are unimportant? And to your point, when you talk about the, the buying experience and the customer experience or their buying journey is the biggest predictor of success, that's based on human interaction. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think I know people get afraid of this idea that a relationship's a friendship, which is just complete and utter BS, as you and I both mm-hmm. know. If you're connected with somebody, you know, the definition 
in the dictionary for a relationship is the way two or more people or things are connected. Yeah. I mean, if you're selling to somebody, you're de facto in a relationship. I mean, yes. How can we, how can we just put this to bed? Relationships are part of selling. It's a it's a huge part of selling, and I think that the uh, let, let, let's <clears throat> let's stop and look at one thing. Okay, so let me just in every interaction you have with another human being at the either the conscious or subconscious level they're asking five questions about you the other person mm-hmm. do i like you do you listen to me do you make me feel important do you get me like do you understand me and yeah. can i trust you and believe you like the, and when right. and if you check those questions off the, it's very hard for people not to do business with you and and so uh, if you think about it that way like that's the relationship and the relationship in on a like an let's say a one call close inside sales you're going to build a relationship and I you know we work with companies so you build a relationship in 5 minutes and all it is is just do I like you I mean are you what, did you ask me a question did you did you did you are you concerned about what how I feel or what I want and when you offered me a solution did you were you nice and if you're really well, nice and I want to buy then I'm more likely to buy from you but if you call somebody if you really want to buy something and the person's a total jerk to you you're going to go someplace else. So that's well, most times, yeah, yeah. almost all but, the time. But but the, here's here's the flip side though of that relationship thing is explicitly people saying, and these are people you and I both know, saying you don't need to be likable to be to be a, an effective salesperson. And you and I both know jerks who have done well in sales, <laughs> but being likable costs you nothing. Why wouldn't you be? If 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 you're trying to gain every competitive advantage, if every little thing makes a difference, why wouldn't you be like? Well, let's. I mean, let's, let's. First of all, there are people who are jerks that are good in sales, but they're not jerks to their customers. They're just jerks to everybody else. Because <laughs> well, because yeah. Yeah, because it's just really simple. Like people don't always do business with people they like. You can. I mean, if you're a glad-handing, you know, charismatic person, and but you're like, you know, you're as Larry Levine says, you're wearing an empty suit. Like you don't mm-hmm. have you don't have the goods to back it up. You, like you're going to sell something, but eventually people are going to catch on that you don't really offer anything of value. So you got to be valuable to your customer. So you, I mean, you got to get that piece. But if you're if you're the smartest human being in the world and you're a complete asshole. Nobody's going to want to work with you, and they're not going to buy yeah. from you because people don't buy from people they don't like. So here's the thing about this echo chamber on LinkedIn. So the first thing, and I'm just going to be call it like it is. Nobody believes that bullshit except for the people that are saying it. Nobody does. <laughs> so because I mean I've got a big company, and and we produce a lot of revenue working with some of the most prestigious organizations in the world. And the people that are running those companies aren't sitting around in a conference room going, you know, we need a new strategy. I think our strategy is going to be. We're just going to piss people off. Like, because <laughs> we're going to be less likable. We're going to be like, nobody needs to like us. <laughs> what I'm seeing, though, is that I'm seeing a lot of executives who get that. They understand it, but they've, they, they've been like, they've been really focused on, on digitization, like the, you know, that transformational thing, numbers and quantitative things, where that's been the primarily place, primarily, you know, primary place they focused. I'm just seeing them shift a little faster into that mm-hmm. because I think one of the things that's happened with the pandemic is we've had to adopt like digital transformation sort of what you know rolled over as like a tidal wave in a series of a couple of months. So what would have taken 10 years to transform us, we've done it very quickly. And yep. I think when you wake up to that and then you realize, okay, well now we're communicating through all these different channels. Take chat for example, I can show you really good chat 
where two people connect, even though they're not talking, like you can see mm-hmm. it happen in real time. And I can show you train wrecks with a transcript where the individual on chat talked over the other person. They weren't likable. They didn't listen to the other person. They just threw out their stock answer. And you can see the person on chat getting frustrated and then abandon the chat. Right? So, but that was a person who came to you, like they came to your customer. <laughs> so, so we know that's to be that, that's true. The other thing is that scientists, science tells us this. So, just go back to Antonio Damasio. He was a professor sure, at Uni- right. uh, University of Michigan. We all know him, and his somatic marker study was you know made him famous. But basically, right. he proved, like so many other scientists have proved, you know. G- you know, Daniel Kahneman's another one. Um, you know, Eichmann's another one. They proved over and over and over again that human beings are irrational and we make decisions based on emotions first and then on logic. Well, that's that's yep. how we operate. And, and and I'll just give you a really quick, I'll just refute everybody who says relationships don't matter with one simple thing, new Coke. If you go back to the late 70s, Pepsi was kicking Coke's rear end because they were running the Pepsi Challenge commercials. People mm-hmm. would walk into a grocery store. They would ask them what their favorite soft drink is. They would say Coke, and then they would sit down, and they would drink the soft drinks, and they would say, oh, I like this one, and they would reveal that it was Pepsi. Coca-Cola didn't believe it, so in, in Atlanta, Georgia, they brought in scientists, and they were running the Pepsi Challenge in their labs, and it turned out that the Pepsi Challenge worked in their labs just as well as it worked in the grocery store. <laughs> so they got together and said, we need to change our formula. So they did, and they created new Coke. And everybody who's been to B-School has gone through this, this case study because it is the greatest marketing disaster of all time. Yep. So- it wasn't until 10 years later that a scientist, and I believe they were at Berkeley, figured this out. They were showing people pictures, uh, really fast pictures of things that were really nice, like fuzzy kittens or things that were really horrible, like a horrible like train wreck where people were lying dead everywhere. And they were showing the picture so fast that you actually couldn't see the picture. Only your subconscious could see the picture. And they were basically asking people like how you felt after seeing certain things. So they were they were able to register that the optic nerve goes directly into the limbic system and that people seeing those pictures, even though they couldn't register it consciously, could feel the emotion of what they were seeing. And mm-hmm. they stumbled on a group of people that this didn't work with. And they figured out that with this group of people that somehow there had been some damage. So the optic nerve was no longer connected. So they didn't get that type of type of emotional connection. This is part of what Damasio did. Yep. So so they basically ran the Pepsi challenge with these folks. And it turned out that the people that had that connection, the you know, their eye to the to the emotions, when they could see the Coke can, they always picked Coke. When they didn't see the Coke can, of course, they would pick Pepsi because the Pepsi to the taste buds tasted better. But Coca-Cola is about Santa Claus and penguins and Christmas and, you know, and the polar bears and, you know, teach the world to, to, to smile and all those things. The people that had that disconnection, they always picked Pepsi, whether they saw the cans or not, because they were focusing and working on logic. So if you think about that, just in that moment, right, logically, Pepsi tastes better than Coke, but emotionally, Coke tastes better than Pepsi. And when the emotions are allowed to take over, what do we do? We pick what we like. And this is why organizations everywhere make illogical decisions based on how they feel. I'm going to give you one more example from my world. 
Mm-hmm. We we were in the middle of a seven-figure deal, a really, really good company. It was a big deal for our organization, and we lost it. So the we built really strong relationships with the stakeholder group as we went along to the point where it was almost a friendship. So they were kind enough to sit down with us. I mean, they 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 felt they really felt an obligation to sit down with us and tell us why we didn't win the deal. And that's always been one of my core drivers as a salesperson is sometimes I'm going to lose, but when I lose, I want the stakeholder group to hurt to tell me no. Like I want it to pain mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. because they like yep. me that much. They sat down with us and they said, here's the thing. You won the deal. You outsold everybody. The way that you guys did this was, it was like artwork. And you sold the way we wanted to to buy your product. But they said, this is a really big deal for our organization. And everyone from the CEO across the organization, their eyes are on this. And we've never worked with you before. And, you know, you're a small company. And we're just, we're just, we just need to pick a safe choice in this situation because our jobs are on the line. But we just wanted to know that you won and we're going to give you some more business. So don't worry about that. We're going to work with you on this and bring you into the organization so you can earn that level of trust. And and I said to him, I said, you know, I would have made exactly the same decision. In that situation, if you just looked at, they liked us more. They felt like we got them. We certainly made mm-hmm. them feel important. They were they were really struck by the way that we approached the sales process, and we won on everything except for we didn't win on trust. They even felt that our solution was better. Like well, everything that we presented to them was the better choice but they needed to trust us because their jobs were on the line. That's not a logical decision. It's an emotional decision. And so, yes, the relationship mattered in that moment, but we didn't have the relationship that the incumbent vendor had of years and years and years of working with them where they had earned that level of trust. So in that case, their relationship with that vendor beat us, even though we were in a situation where we won at the at, truly at the logical level. So this, you know, this echo chamber of relationships don't matter, like a lot of things on LinkedIn. And I know the person that you're talking about, they say those things because because A, it's provocative. So they get a lot of likes. And the, I've learned a long time ago, you can't spend likes. So if likes were dollars, <laughs> I'd be doing the same thing. But I think the other part of it is that um, that people gravitate to that because it makes it easy for them. This is why Challenger, you know, was such a big deal, even though in most cases it didn't really work because Mm -hmm. very few people could actualize the idea and people loved it because it just took the, Hey, you don't need a relationship here, right? You just need to go and tell people what they're doing wrong. Now that's not actually what they wrote, but that's what, that's what most people read into it and how people approached it because that's easy. Like if I don't have to go like make you like me, build a relationship, if I can just go in and talk about logic, gosh, that's easy. Like building a relationship with somebody and oh, by the way, doing it on a video call, it's hard. Like I've got to, I've got to be vulnerable. I've got to listen. I've got to step into it. I've got to be a human being. That is really difficult work. But if you don't need a relationship, you need to like me, screw you. Here's what, here's the deal. You need to take it because I'm better than everybody else. Bye now. <laughs> well, what, I, yeah, I think to your point is some of the people that make that that claim draw the completely wrong lesson from their own advocacy for it, which is that they're actually very likable. Um, <laughs> they just aren't very self aware about it. But I think, yeah, I think this whole idea is that that people are trying to eliminate the emotional side of things, which is just impossible to do, as you as you described through Damasio's work. You had another study he did where he found this. And you probably know about this. He, came across this guy, the, the emotional 
control center of his mm-hmm. brain had been damaged, and he couldn't make any decisions. None. Without emotion, he could not make any decision. He couldn't decide what to wear, couldn't decide what to eat, couldn't decide to turn left or right when he left his house, all those things. So, and this feeds into something else I'm sort of interested in, and where you come across is that, and this in your work, is, is I'm, again, I'm finding that, you know, people are training sellers. Yeah, we, they don't have time for small talk, you know, the people you're talking to. They don't have time <laughs> to, you know, sort of these basic human things. But it sort of gets magnified because, you know, if you've got a group of stakeholders, is, again, one of the things science shows, and this has been known since the 50s, is that when you get a group of stakeholders and look at making a decision in a business, is they look at it at two levels. What's it mean for the company and what's it mean for me? Mm-hmm. And so, if you don't think there's a relationship is important, then you're going to miss that whole personal level. There. That's right. You really don't have 10 stakeholders. You've got 20 stakeholders in that case. That's exactly right. They ask the question, do you get me and my problems? See, what we forget is that you're selling to people that are using other people's money to solve their issues. And it, and they're asking that question, me and my company. And and the me part matters. And even in negotiation, for example, you know, there's when we look at, for example, we use a, a discovery format and it's just an acronym called SCORE. Um, mm-hmm. But the but the first two, the S is the stakeholders criteria for evasion, uh, uh, for evaluation. So what's their what's the individual stakeholders personal criteria? And then we then we look at the criteria for evaluation at the enterprise level. Because at the enterprise level, that's that's how the organization is deciding whether they're going to buy your company or buy your product. But the individual stakeholders, they each have a list. And those lists can be divergent in what everybody wants, especially you know, when you're looking at a group of stakeholders that may even have different loyalties. And, and, mm-hmm. and, it's, and it's normal in the training world to lose a deal because you're working with a group of stakeholders and three of the stakeholders have worked with another company and they like that company. Like they're just connected to them. It has nothing to do with the training material or anything like that. It has everything to do with the relationship that they built with them. It's brand loyalty, which by the way is irrational. Brand loyalty is irrational. <laughs> so, yes. so I think that the, I think you're exactly right. And uh, and you you can never disconnect yourself from the fact that there's an individual human being making the decision. And Gladwell's last book, by the way, um, yeah, talking to strangers, yeah, good book. When he was uh, when he was talking about how the judges, like when you blindfold the, the judge, couldn't see the um, you know the defendants, and when they could see mm-hmm. the defendants, how they made different different decisions about bail based on what they yeah. could see. I thought that was like one of the most fascinating things that's scary oh, it's scary but it you but again defining and and refuting anybody who says that relationships and connections and likability don't matter yeah well so i uh, glad i triggered you on that because that's i was been triggered on that in the last couple of days <laughs> is is um <laughs> i have to i almost i i wrote like i had a whole thing i wrote for one of those posts and i and i just i went and looked in the mirror and Me said too. jeb this is not worth your time and effort. Move on. <laughs> yeah, I sent it to Alec and I said, "What do you think?" But don't post it. <laughs> <laughs> and he can he can he can validate that when he comes back in when the call's over. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're in the same boat because it. I just I've learned to just ignore them because I just I just know that they're the only people that believe them, uh, believe those things, and and they're pandering to groups of salespeople who. The tr- are scared. They're scared, and the truth is they're, yeah. they're probably not very good at what they do, and this just gives them an out. Well, that sort of leads to the question I was going to ask you, is because I did go through uh, Scan's one person's book on virtual selling, and 
and sort of the premise was is that hey, there's this like completely different set of skills that you need to have. And my reaction to that was, well, what you said earlier in the conversation is good sales behaviors are good sales behaviors. And you need them. And it's not like you can come up and be a completely different person with a completely different set of skills in a virtual world than you can meeting someone in person. No, virtual selling is still selling. And that's that yeah. that premise is just it's let me say it this way. You to create emotional connection with people in a virtual world requires that you pay attention to some different things. And but it doesn't require that you change the way that you sell. You know, doing good discovery, delivering a great presentation and business case that connects with what the buyer told you, asking provocative questions. You know, one of the things that I'm able to do on a virtual call that's almost impossible on an in-person call is I've got one of these smart boards. So when I'm on a virtual call, I can ask questions and and whiteboard and collaborate at a, at, a, at a level that's much deeper than I do in person with a group of stakeholders. And then I can send my, my, my stakeholders a PDF of the notes mm-hmm. that we took on the whiteboard while we did it. So, you know, the, the tool just gives me a lot more dimension in what I'm able to do. But if I was there in person and there was a whiteboard there, I always get up and with a pen and I whiteboard stuff with my customer. But the, but the, virt- the, the smart board's great because I can share it with them and they can do it at the same time. But the, yeah, advancing through the, through the process and, and selling and, you know, and I just start the book off saying I'm not an I'm not an evangelist for virtual selling. I'm not. I'm not an evangelist for any type of selling. I'm an evangelist for talking with people. I'm an evangelist for building relationships right. and building connections. Right. And I believe that what the what the virtual what was happened with the with COVID has made this the best time ever to sell. I believe that the the young salespeople who are going through this right now are going to come out on the other side of this crucible way better than they ever were before. And the people that come behind them that didn't have this experience won't be nearly as good as they are. And I believe that it's forcing everyone to learn that we can communicate through an omni-channel approach, both synchronous and asynchronous. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it's about talking with people. At the end of the day, it's about selling and virtual selling is still selling the same principles everything is exactly the same uh but we are we, we do miss a few things so we miss you know we miss the whole picture you you know when you walk we into miss the, the body language you can't really see the body language well you can you can on the telephone but we've been selling stuff with the phone forever so on the phone like i always sell you know inside salespeople on the phone it's like selling with you know blindfolded with two arms and a leg tied behind your back because 80 percent mm-hmm. of you know, of human communication is visual. I mean, eighty percent of the of the brain's computing power is is computing what you see with your eyes. I mean, that, that all that you take in. So we know that to be true. But inside, salespeople do just fine. They sell stuff over the phone all the time because they they train their brain to listen to the nuance of the conversation. They get good at pacing themselves on the phone and asking good questions. So they they shift and learn how to do that. Video poses a different set of issues where. You know, we've got to we've got to to solve the problem of video fatigue, which means that you need to get your frame right. You need 
need to get your lighting right. That means that you need to have a good video call set that's not distracting, but is pleasurable for people to interact with. It means that you can use tools like a whiteboard. So when you're taking notes and people can't actually see your hands taking notes, that you just stand up and take them on your whiteboard. I do it all the time. It's amazing. People get off the phone like, how can I do that? Teach my people. Because it, because it <laughs> makes them feel good. Because if, if the stakeholder says something and I write it down on the whiteboard and they see it, all of a sudden they're like, man, that makes me feel important and significant that this person heard me. I'm using the same principles, but I'm, I'm, I'm accentuating it and I'm building it out. So on a presentation, salespeople learn how to pace and pause themselves so that they learn how to bring other people into the conversation by calling them by name. They have to be better in discovery so that they have the information that they need to say, hey, Andy, you know, when we were talking last week on our call, you said that this was really important to you based on what I just presented. Tell me how you feel like that's going to work for your organization. If you didn't have that information, then you're not going to be able to ask that question and bring that person into the conversation. So I don't see to me, like I don't sell any differently than I did in person than I do when I'm selling virtually. I, it does take a little bit longer to build relationships. However, mm -hmm. the one thing that I'm able to do is I'm able to compress sell cycles I, like further than you can ever imagine. Like I'm do, we're doing, we, and a good example is we did an almost seven figure deal. That would have that was a rewrite of the company's training program. We were writing it for their trainers. So they have you know almost thirty trainers. So we're building the leader guides, writing the program. You know, it's a licensing program for IP, but we're building it around mm -hmm. them. You know, we're talking about several hundred hours of you know of work. We have to be creative. Then we have to do train the trainer for them. So it's a really big deal and a really big deal for this company and a really big company. So it's a lot of money. Typically it would have taken about six months to put one of those deals together just because, you know, you have a meeting and then three weeks later, you're going to have another meeting and then you got to go talk to this person. I mean, we're doing deals like that in six weeks now, but we're having three video calls a week versus what we would have done on a deal that size before is we would have gotten on an airplane, gone over there, sat in their conference room, spent a couple of hours there, come back, spent six more yep. weeks getting together. We're, we're not having to do that and customers are accepting it. But I'm going to tell you something. If you don't, like if, if you think that you're going to sell differently, if you think those things, it's the group of people that say, and you can skip steps. Like there's somebody out there telling people yeah. that they shouldn't wave and smile when they get on a video call. Like, like <laughs> what, what kind of a moron would tell people something like that? Well, I, can, I have a list actually. Yeah. I'll tell you after we're done. Like, don't be nice to people when you get on a video call. But when I get on a video call, I wave at everybody and smile. And you know what everybody does? They smile and they wave back at me. Wave we just shook hands. It's awesome, right? right? So <laughs> I'm like, you know, it's just this, it's just this drivel and it's pandering, and it's wrong, and uh, and you know it's wrong, and I know it's wrong. And the beautiful thing is most of the smart people in the world that are actually making money know it's wrong. Yeah. Well, and the thing you talked about that I wanted to get back to real quickly as you talk about you know closing deals in shorter period of time is, yeah, I wrote about this in my first book, which was there's just this oral tradition that's gone around in sales is like, you know, I talk to the customer on day one, and and there has to be this interval that exists before I go back, right? Yeah, and and this whole period is putting the lie to that because it's it's not the case. It's never been the case, actually. Uh, but and sometimes if you're in a field sales mode, yeah, you know, it took a certain number of days before you got back to people. People want to make decisions faster than we've ever thought that they wanted to. Mm -hmm. They've always wanted to make decisions faster than sellers want to sell to them. I mean, my my experience over decades, and it's like, were you prepared to to serve that? 
and most sales organizations weren't. Yeah, and it was, you know, and it was the field salesperson because I was there. I mean, you'd meet with them on Tuesday, so you set the next meeting for the next week. So if you've got a 90-day sales cycle, here's when you get in and here's how you keep Mm -hmm. it going. And there was some strategy to that. You know, there was the you would go faster or slower based on where you thought your competitor was. You could probably take them, you know, take them (laughs) off of their – but but it, but a lot of it was just travel. Like you come in and you're working yeah. so many deals and that's that that section of your territory, you don't go to that section until Thursdays. So you were just naturally pushed off. But now, I mean, even, you know, there has been a move called social proximity, which is essentially, you know, you, you build territories based on how connected mm-hmm. people are to other people back to our right. connection, but connections don't matter. Right. Um, and, and the nice thing about virtual is that virtual begins to break down geographic territories, although in, in local field organizations where people are making risky decisions and face-to-face matters and gives you a competitive advantage, you're still going to have geographical connections. But now, literally, you can sell anywhere, anytime. And that's just back to my premise. My job on virtual is to create is to create the closest facsimile to a face-to-face conversation as possible. So I'm just teaching people, when you sit up at night and watch Netflix, my wife and I were binging a show called Away the other night ago, which is a fantastic show. We watched three episodes. We didn't want to go to bed. We want to watch the fourth episode. And we had to go to bed because we got to go. We have right. jobs, right? So, right. but we didn't get up off the couch and go, man, I got Netflix fatigue. What am I going to do about this? You know, and, but you spend a day on Zoom calls and you get off the, off the calls, your brain hurts. And your brain hurts because it doesn't look right. When you watch a TV show, everything looks right. It the, 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 you know, everything's symmetrical and the colors mm-hmm. are right and the lighting right. And they put a lot of effort in that because they reduce overall cognitive load when you're on a, when you're watching a show. So we, you have a you have a pleasurable experience doing that. So I'm just teaching people. Listen, if you're going to get on a v- video call with people, stand up. Get good lighting, get a good microphone. You know, make sure that you sound good. Get rid of the echoey room and. And then we're just teaching people the art of being on camera, not the art of, you know, of you need to change the way you're selling. Because when if you go to my virtual selling classes, we're really not teaching you virtual selling. We're teaching you virtual how to like the technical aspects and human aspects of, for example, how to how to maintain eye contact on a Zoom call. Very difficult for people, but very important because eye contact is one of the things that we that we look to in face to face interactions that allow us to trust the other person. It's teaching them how do you show interest by leaning forward into the camera. How do you position yourself so that if you were if you know if you're doing that rather than being in their conference room, you can create the same feeling that we do in person. I believe that in person is the best way to communicate. It's just not always the most efficient way to communicate or the cost effective way. So if we can teach people that we still got to go back and teach them sales skills, right? We still have all the issues of, you know, you got a prospect and you got to fill the pipeline. <laughs> you got to get to the next step. But the number one thing is if, if, if people are getting on a video call with you and you suck on the video call because they can't see you because you got a bright window behind you, they're not going to want to get on the next video call. So your sales cycle is going to stretch out because they're avoiding you because you suck too. I mean, they don't want to do that. Yeah, they don't do business with, with you. No. So one thing you said that you sort of ran through, and this is, this is interesting because I hadn't really thought of this and I don't see anybody else doing it. You said stand up in front of the camera. Yes. Yeah. Stand up. 
Um, Interesting. Always stand up. I would never stand up. Like, you know, I grew up selling where like, one of the first rules I, I you know, I was told is don't, don't, don't try to sell standing up. And th- right. what they really meant by that was don't walk into someone's business and pitch them while you're standing up. Get across the threshold mm-hmm. into their office, sit down. But, uh, but it was always at the back of my head and that I would never, like, I wouldn't go into someone's world and stand up. It would be uncomfortable for people to do that. But on a video call, we all stand up. Everybody on my team stands up and we've been doing it for years. And the way that I, that I started doing it and discovered that it was a better, I got better reactions from people was we started delivering virtual training in like 2015. And in right. 2016, we started getting better at it. Uh, in you know, 2018, we were really starting to pick up a lot more agreements with smaller companies that just didn't want the travel costs, and we started perfecting virtual training. And in fact, I've got a new book coming out called Virtual Training Bible. Um, to, of, course, the, of course you do. Of course you do. Talks <laughs> Is that about, coming out tomorrow? Yeah, it'll be out soon. Um, <laughs> but it talks about the things that we, you know, we learned along the way. And I remember the day that, for me, it struck me, because I didn't like virtual training. Like, I really hated it. It felt bad to me. I didn't get off the training calls feeling like getting the juice that I would normal normally feel if I went to a training room. And and I just couldn't figure it out. But but one day I'm like, I'm going to try standing up. So it was a really awful thing. I didn't have any, like I didn't have a stand-up desk or anything. So I'd stacked like like audio foam and cardboard boxes mm-hmm. up on this really rickety sort of sort of tower, and I put my laptop on the top of it and said a short prayer that the thing wouldn't fall off. <laughs> and I delivered a training for a group of uh, sales reps in a manufacturing space while I was standing up. And when I walked away, I felt good. And then when I w- went back and looked at the video replay, I was like, they felt good too. They were leaning more into me. They were, you know, they were, there were less of them that were, you know, looking down and being distracted by other things. The energy was better. You know, it, it showed through the, through the lens and it took me another full year to get my trainers to start doing the same thing. And I'll still watch their replay videos and go get off the stool, stand up. And, and, and now I teach salespeople to do the same thing because when you're standing up, like if you should see me on video, you can see my hands, which is really important right. because when people can't see your hands because of the human negativity bias, what are they doing? They're thinking about why they can't see your hands and they're usually not thinking it's a good thing. And I'm not talking about a bad thing like that, but you know, if you can't yeah. see my hands, hands are dangerous. Like hands are deadly weapons. So you can see my hands. I'm always on a camera torso up. And then I can that's okay. So like waist up, waist up, and then I lean into the camera. I can lean away from the camera. I can put distance between myself and them. And the horizontal and vertical lines are always the same. And everything that I'm doing in that moment is to try to create a a, a more normal environment so that people have a great experience and that they want to do more calls with me. And and in a lot of cases, they just get on and go, wow. They go, I mean, people are like, wow. I, can you show me how to do that? And I'll even notice my clients begin changing their video frames after they get on a call with me. They they start getting better at it. <laughs> they start imitating, yeah. Because because they know that it made them feel that good. Like suddenly they were like, this looks normal to me. I mean, this is what this is what normal looks like. And so if we can do things that reduce fatigue for our customer, then it gets easier. And by the way, Andy, you know, I we, yes. we talk about video all the time. There are some times when video is the absolute wrong thing to do. Pick up the damn phone and just have a conversation. Like, I don't need to have a video call in this particular situation with this particular stakeholder. So you need to, you know, like, be aware that just because video is hot, it's not the only way that we communicate. Yeah, well, I think that 
there are situations where a certain um, intimacy is required. Yeah. And I believe the phone is a more intimate way to communicate mm-hmm. than a video call. It is. But I, you know, I, I just think that I think if you can get good at the video calls and look, we're, you know, we're investing. We're, if you were to come to our studios, um, you'd be amazed at some of the equipment that we bought so that we can have better video calls. And it's expensive. And we have one one studio where uh, we have a about a thirty five hundred dollar piece of equipment, and it sits uh, the camera sits into it, and it's basically a big glass. But we're able to project the person's face on the glass right in front of the camera. So their eyeballs are right in front of the camera. So when we're looking at the camera, I mean, literally they can see us and there's no gap at all. So there's no looking around or looking down. Really, really powerful, but really, really expensive. But when you can when you can do that, so if you're an enterprise level salesperson, if you're selling deals that really matter and you're a company, you should be investing in this technology for your best salespeople um, so that they have that ability. I wouldn't like I wouldn't give that to, you know, a random SDR. But no. but when we're working on big deals and we want to wow people, we use those things. And listen, you know the thing about wowing people emotionally, I, I, I always give, I give the analogy and I write about it in the book that when when I was this is back in like 1992, 93, 94, but Microsoft PowerPoint had just kind of come out. And Mm -hmm. I saw someone use a PowerPoint presentation in my company. And at that time, I think we had one computer for 200,000 people that had PowerPoint on it. (laughs) And I was like, that is incredible. Like, I immediately was like, I got to have it. So I went to my boss and like, you got to give me PowerPoint. Oh, by the way, I need a laptop. Now imagine 1993 asking for a laptop and you're just a field account executive. I'm just a briefcase carrier and knocking Mm. on doors. My boss looked at me like I had lost my mind. And I'm like, seriously, I need a laptop and I need that software. And the and and they wouldn't let me have it, so I went and bought it with my own money. And then I went to Best Buy, which you know that was the place where you bought equipment at the time. And I think I dropped to like five grand on computers, so that I could run PowerPoint. And I started using it, and I did get my boss to relent and allow me to rent projectors because you know projectors sure. at that time were in suitcases. Yeah, and I would, they're big. And I would, I started building my final presentations in PowerPoint. I would walk into people, people's place of business. I would set the projector up. Sometimes I was like, like a, I, like I was a camel. I had the screen on my back. Like I'm walking in, you know, and I'm like this massive, all of this equipment. And I would set it up and I would run PowerPoint and they would hand me money. Cause they were like, nobody's ever done anything like that. They couldn't see it. And back then, you know, we'd have things, you know, spinning around in circles. But I even like in, in 1994, I figured out how to drop video into PowerPoint and make it run even on those machines. And when you're running a presentation and you're dropping a video on a PowerPoint when you're running a machine, people sit up and look. And they would write, you know, they would send me, you know, letters and they would tell me later on, nobody's ever done thing like that. It was incredible. So I used technology in that moment to rise above everyone else. Now, you, you know, you walk in with a PowerPoint, you're just like everybody else. So same things happen in here. Everybody's going to get good at video, but right now the people that are adopting this and, and leaning into it and getting really good at it and learning how to blend it into their entire sales process, again, there are some situations where you need to go there. Like you're you're selling, I got a client that sells a big equipment, really expensive, like you know $500,000 machines into manufacturing plants. There's part of the discovery process where you got to go. Like there's no right. way you could do that virtually. So, but they're able to do a lot of their initial meetings or initial discovery meetings on video and they're getting good at it and they can do demos on video and they're getting really good at that. So they're shortening their sales cycles because they're using these tools. 
but the but the salespeople right now that lean into this and get good at it, they're the ones that are separating themselves. And we're seeing it in our own business. Like we get clients going, man, nobody did anything like that. Well, there were a bunch of talking heads, and they can see that like we're putting on a production. And, and I'm like, and it just excites me to be able to go and invest in this stuff and get so good at it that we're creating this, this separation from our competitors and our ability to interact with people that I know that they'll eventually close, but in the short term, why not take advantage of it? Absolutely. All right, Jeb, guess what? (laughs) What? What? We didn't talk about negotiation. I'm, I don't know why. I've got the book right in front of me. In case you ask me something hard, I can look it well, up. I've, I only have like 50 questions about it, but um, we'll have to do it again. Well, see, actually, this is this is my this is my ploy. Actually, is I had no intention of talking about it. I, this is just a way to suck you in to get you back on the show. Well, I love it. I love anytime. I'm still ready to talk about negotiating. Next time we can talk about you know the you know the art of negotiating in a virtual world and you know and what you have to do. Oh, yeah. So um, we can do that. But it was it's been a delightful conversation as always. I think I I think I dominated the poor conversation this time. I'm sorry. No, no, this this was great. Great information. It's your People fault for this. lighting me up like a rocket ship with that. <laughs> We don't need relationships <laughs> comment. <laughs> well, I know I could count on you. So, all right, Jeb, if people want to contact you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, best way is go to my website is sellsgravy.com, S-E-L-E-S-G-R-A-V-Y.com. For all the people that aren't from the South, there is no E in gravy. So sellsgravy.com. <laughs> and uh, you can, if you want to send me an email, I'm at jeb at sellsgravy.com. That is my real email address. So please don't spam me. And uh, you can also find me on Instagram at sellsgravy, Twitter at sellsgravy, Facebook at sellsgravy. And just look me up, J-E-B-B-L-O-U-N-T, Jeb Blunt at LinkedIn. Yeah, you keep saying gravy. I'm getting hungry. I know. <laughs> Especially from the South, because there is sausage in that gravy. Oh, I love some sausage gravy. <laughs> oh, okay. All right, Jeb, now I'm hungry. All right, as always, we pleasure to have you on. And like I said, we'll get you on. We will talk negotiation. Awesome. But there's so much going on that uh, we just had to talk about this. All right, thanks. Thank you. Talk to you later. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm ever so grateful for your support of this program. And I want to thank Jeb Blount for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you could also leave us a rating and a review, let us know how we're doing. Well, we'd certainly appreciate that. And you can do that all on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.